Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your voice heard, your words received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose. Father, awaken our hearts and our minds to hear from you and to receive from you today as we celebrate your holy Shabbat. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. This is the beginning of this week's uh, Torah Parsha, which is Parsha uh, Shoftim. Um, and we're going to dive right into it in just a second uh, as we move forward. But as we've been talking about for several weeks now, this is actually the fourth week of this. Uh, we are in the middle of the, the Haftarot of Consolation, uh, the seven messages of Isaiah, the seven messages of Consolation, which uh, fall in between uh, Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, they lead us from the destruction of the temple to the, uh, the, the reality of the ten days of awe and the, the importance of, of uh, repentance, which ultimately it was the, the actions of Israel that caused the destruction of the temple and, uh, and in turn a necessity for repentance that brought Israel back again. Uh, so this week we are now in the fourth week of the Haftarot uh, of consolation, of the seven messages of consolation. Um, and in particular, this week is an interesting one, this week and next week, because uh, between these two parshot, the, the Haftorah parshot from Isaiah, we actually see a very convenient, uh, and I use that term very loosely, a very convenient parsing of the passage in order to eliminate Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 52.12 through Isaiah 53.12 from the seven messages of Isaiah in the traditional uh, uh, Torah cycle calendar and how we read the, uh, the Torah uh, or the half Torah cycle uh, in, in Judaism today. Um, and as we look at the seven messages, it's really easy to see that it's highly likely in its originality that, the, that Isaiah 52.12 to Isaiah 53.12 were actually part of the seven messages of Isaiah, that it was actually read every year in the synagogue uh, up until some point after Yeshua walked on earth in which it was way too uh, close to home and had to remove it uh, from the context of the seven messages of Isaiah to make it fit within the narrative of Yeshua not being the Messiah. And so uh, at our synagogue, as a Messianic synagogue, I am a huge proponent to Yeshua is Messiah. And so as such, we actually in our congregation hold to uh, Isaiah 52, 12 to 53, 12, being a part of this week's Parsha uh, leading into next week's Parsha. So with that said, we're going to dive right into uh, the passage today, right into the, the Torah Parsha and move forward into Isaiah, into the Haftorah. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 says, Judges and officers you are to appoint within your gates, and Adonai your God is that Adonai your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they are to judge the people with righteous judgment. 
You are not to twist justice. You, not, uh, you must not show partiality to take a bribe uh, or take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the words of the righteous. Justice, justice you must pursue so that you may live and possess the land that Adonai your God is giving you. Uh, so there are uh, two words that we're hearing uh, in this passage repetitively. One is justice and one is righteous or righteousness, right? How many of you realize that in the Hebrew, same word? Same exact word. So here in verse 20, when it says justice, justice, you must pursue. In the Hebrew, it's zedek, zedek uh, is the words that are used there. Um, zedek is the, the word that we get uh, zedek or righteousness from. It's the, the root word that we get righteous from. And, and zedek means the right or right actions, just actions. And so it can be translated as justice, as in uh, justice in a court of law, or it can be translated as righteousness, as in we are to live righteous lives. And so here in this passage, we actually see it translated in both ways as that root uh, zedek is a part of numerous uh, places in this passage. So as we're looking at this, we recognize that it's not just justice in the sense of, okay, make sure you do right by other people, but it's justice in the sense of it is a righteous act of justice that we do uh, to be right by God, to do right by God, not necessarily just to do right by people, but we are extending to those around us. We're extending to those who are, uh, uh, find themselves in a situation where they have to come before judges and, and such. We're, we're to extend to them a courtesy of grace and mercy to make sure that they get a fair case, a fair trial, a fair shake of things. And as we move through this portion, particularly as we look through the entirety of the Torah, we recognize that there's countless scenarios in which a judge would be necessary uh, within the, the theocratic leadership of Israel, whether it's determining uh, whether a wayward son should be uh, put to death if the parents bring that before the priesthood, uh, or it's determining... You know, for instance, the guy picking up sticks on Shabbat, you know, that's something that would then be taken before the judges and the accusers, the witnesses would then have to testify before the judge. And as we continue to move through this Parsha in verse six of chapter 17, it says, by the word of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die is to be put to death. No one is to be put to death by the word of one witness. The hand of the witness is to be first to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you were to purge the evil from your midst. Uh, so in case you were wondering, uh, or in case you were curious how this worked when it came time for someone to accuse somebody or stand as a witness against somebody in, the, uh, in a situation of capital punishment, if you're the witness, if you're the one standing before the, the judges, standing before the nation, the tribe that you live within, and say, hey, dude over here just did this, and we need to put him to death, we need to stone him. Guess what? It's hard enough being that witness and knowing that you were responsible to some degree for that person dying. Granted, it was their actions that was truly responsible, but nonetheless, you have some responsibility in it. But then to take it a step further, you're the one that has to throw the first stone. You're the one that has to be involved. So when we look at the Gospels and we see Yeshua and they bring the, they're trying to trap him, they bring the woman who's accused of adultery before Yeshua and say, hey, now you get a stoner. It was a trap because they were trying to see how Yeshua was going to respond. If he said, all right, cool, the Torah says stoner, we stoner. And uh, then they'd say, oh, see, you're breaking the Torah because it doesn't say that exactly. It says both parties have to be, the man and the woman have to be brought and the witnesses have to be the first ones to throw the stone and so on and so forth. So when Yeshua says, hey, look, the one without sin, he's the one that can cast the first stone. What he was saying first off is none of you are righteous. None of you are bringing a righteous, a just accusation. It's not to say that she wasn't caught. 
because odds are she was. And it was actually likely a setup, and they did this on purpose just to be able to trap Yeshua. But Yeshua says the one without sin is the one that cast the first stone. So the, one, uh, the, the witnesses that would cast the stone uh, are the ones that have to be willing to come forward and do so. But beyond that, he says, by the way, I know one of you is the dude that was with her, and you're trying to unjustly accuse her, recognizing that both of you are to be stoned. Uh, and all of a sudden, the crowd went, nope, I'm out. <laughs> And rolled out, and that was it. And Yeshua tells her, go and send no more. Uh, and so we recognize the, that even in the, the, the commandments within the Torah that so many people outside of the body of Messiah, so many people outside of those that cleave to the word of God uh, want to use as ways to try and prove that the word of God is just vicious and vindictive and that the God of the Old Testament, quote unquote, is an angry and, and vengeful God and so on and so forth. And they go to passages like this that talk about capital punishment and how if somebody you've got to stone them and, and all of this kind of stuff. And they go, oh, but the God of the New Testament is mercy and love, and that's not part of it. And we don't have to worry about that anymore. Or people on the outskirts of the body that are, you know, for instance, atheists that use this to go, see, this isn't a righteous God. This isn't, uh, this is something unholy. This is something that's, that's just mean and, and arbitrary and vindictive and vengeful and so on. Well, we look at this and we actually go, no, it's, it's actually a really great foundation for grace and mercy. Because in order for the person accused of doing something wrong, which in context here in this passage, it's specifically dealing with somebody who worships uh, an idol who makes an offering to a false god. But nonetheless, in order to be the one presenting this person before the courts and saying, I stand as a witness, you have to be willing to put them to death, physically be involved with it. And so, for instance, with a wayward son, the reason we never read about that occurring in the scriptures is because who in the world wants to bring their son before the, the priest and go, there's no hope left for him. Let's just kill him. Should be done with it. I've got no hope left that this kid's going to turn around again. He's a lost cause. Nobody's going to do that. It's just not going to happen. The reality is, is as we look at scripture, we recognize even in the lines that deal with capital punishment, there's grace and mercy. Because, for instance, with adultery required both parties. It requires the witnesses to be the ones to throw the first stone. So you really got to think, do I want to be a part of this? Granted, yes, the person's actions were entirely wrong. But imagine this. Here it says, and by this you were to purge, verse 7, the end of verse 7. So you were to purge the evil from your midst, right? The actual killing of the individual accused of the, the crime, accused of the sin, absolutely purges that sin from the midst of the people, right? Gets it out of the way, right? But how much more so? If we go to that person and we convince them to make Teshuvah, to return back to the Lord, how much more so is it to bring that person back to the Lord and see them restored in faithfulness to the Lord? So if we look at this and we, we recognize that God is laying out, it's not that just all of a sudden in Matthew and, uh, and throughout the Gospels that this message of grace and mercy pops up. No, the very foundation of the word of God from the foundations of creation were grace and mercy. The fact that we exist is a sign of grace and mercy because he knew what Adam and Eve were going to do and he created us anyways. So the reality is, is God had a plan from the very beginning that was solely ground in grace and mercy. Unfortunately, there are times where it doesn't quite pan out that way because of our actions. But this is what God's desire is for his people at all times. We go on to verse uh, 15 of chapter 18. 
Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says, I don't know, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brothers. To him you must listen. This is just what you asked of Adonai, your God, in Horeb I, uh, on the day of the assembly when saying, I cannot continue to hear the voice of Adonai, my God, and see this great fire anymore or I will die. This is speaking about Sinai when they heard the Aseret Hadibrut, the ten words uh, come forth from the, the presence of the Lord, the Shekhinah, Mount Sinai, and cried out to Moses, we're going to die if we hear him again. You go and get it, and everything he says we will do. Verse 17, Adonai said to me, they have done well in what they have spoken. I will raise up a prophet like you from, uh, for them from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. Now, whoever does not listen to my words that this prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet will die. So as we're looking at the, the, the Parsha here, and especially this period of time between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, or the 10 days of awe, this, this period in Elul where we are focused on repentance and self-introspection and, and restoration in our relation to the Lord, we recognize that there's this, li- this line of Messianic prophecies throughout the Torah Parshot uh, of these seven weeks, throughout the Haftorah Parshot of these seven weeks. Uh, and here is one of those where we have this passage in which the Lord speaks through Moses to the nation of Israel and says, I will send a prophet like Moses who will lead you in all righteousness and he'll speak my words. I will place my words in him and he will speak them before you. And the one who does not listen uh, the, to the prophet, uh, I myself will call him to account. And we recognize Yeshua who this, the Brachadashah, the New Covenant writings, particularly uh, Hebrews tells us that he was the prophet like this uh, in Acts uh, Peter says he was the prophet like Moses that the Lord sends, and it was specifically for the purpose of restoring us, of bringing us to Teshuvah, bringing us to repentance before the Lord, that this, uh, that this prophet like Moses would come, that the Messiah would come, and he, comes, he came specifically for the point of showing the reality of grace and mercy that was always intended from the foundations of creation. So we've talked about this before. God's single desire for his creation was an intimate relationship. He created Adam and Eve to exist in the Garden of Eden, specifically for the purpose of interacting and existing in the presence, the Shekinah, the divine glory of the Lord. I've told you before, and I talk about it quite often when we're dealing with Parsha Bereshit, that uh, I don't think that when the Lord appeared to Adam and Eve in the middle of the day and the day that they were found to be naked, uh, or that they realized they were naked, I don't think that that was the first time that the Lord appeared to them in the middle of the day. Because why else would they go and run and put garments on? They knew that he was coming. They were used to it. They were prepared for this. He came all the time. We have no idea how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before they ate of the fruit. We have no clue. The scripture doesn't give us any, any uh, uh, idea there. It also doesn't give us any idea that there was anything outside of day and night in regards to time in the garden. Because the garden ultimately is a picture of heaven in which there is no time. Right? And so as we're looking at all this, we don't know how long they were there. We don't know how it all worked out, but we do know they were kicked out of the garden for the sin of eating the fruit, but they were recognized and prepared for the presence of the Lord, for uh, God to come and walk with them in the middle of the day. And, and as I said, I truly believe that God created us for intimacy and created us to be intimate with him, to have a relationship with him. And, and I think that there's this narrative throughout the scriptures of us being his children and him being our Abba, our daddy. And so I get this picture when I read uh, Bereshit and I read about God coming to meet with them in the middle of the day of them walking through the garden like a child holding his father's hand in the park, intimately re, uh, interacting with and, and having this, this, this literal relational experience with their father. 
And so I think it was no surprise to them when God showed up in the middle of the day to walk with them. That it was by no surprise that they knew he was coming and they ran to, to fashion some sort of a garment to hide their nakedness. And the reality is, is God wants to bring us back, not necessarily a place of being naked all the time, but he wants to bring us back to a place of being uh, intimate with him, to a place of, of holding his hand like a child holds their father's hand and walking in complete and total trust and faith in his mercy, his love, and his protection. We go to the, the Haftorah, Isaiah 52, beginning with verse 7. Uh, it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces shalom, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, to Zion, your God reigns. By the way, this is a nod back to the prophet like Moses that the Lord would, would, rise, uh, would rise up out of the nation, out of their, their brothers, out of their tribes to lead the people back into himself. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they will lift up their voices together. They are shouting for joy, for they will see eye to eye when Adonai returns to Zion. Break forth in joy, sing together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for Adonai has comforted his people he has redeemed Israel. Keep in mind, this is speaking, Isaiah is speaking in past tense about events that haven't occurred yet, right? Isaiah is writing this before the destruction of the temple. He's writing this before the, the kingdom of Judah has been entirely disbanded from the nation. He's writing this before the Babylonian captivity, talking about the restoration of Israel that would come sometime later after the captivity uh, uh, by the Babylonians. And we go to verse 12, of ch uh, verse 13, sorry, of chapter 12. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was disfigured more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So he will sprinkle many nations. Uh, things will shut up their mouths because of him. Uh, kings, I'm sorry, will shut up their mouths because of him. For what had not been told them uh, what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will perceive. I want to pause here for a second. As we're looking at this, and you notice the graphic behind me that says, is God fair, right? The reality is, is the world around us is asking that all the time. Why do good things happen to bad people, or why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah, that's the one. Why do bad things happen to good people, right? People ask this kind of question all the time. And so there's always this kind of uh, esoteric question that exists in the realm of uh, discussion around us is, is God fair? Is he loving? Is he kind? Does God really care about us? Does God even exist? And my answer to you is very simply, yes, God is fair. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. Where it gets interesting is his idea of fair and righteous and just is entirely different than ours. And before we get hung up on that and we start talking, as many outside the body of Messiah would try to point out to the book of Joshua and the wiping out of the people of Jericho and other places, and, oh, well, that's not very just, and that's not very fair, and that's not very righteous, let me pose to you this. In a moment, we're going to read from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, about Mashiach, about Messiah Yeshua, who is the prophet like Moses who would come, who literally laid his life down for us, who was spotless, sinless, righteous, perfect and allowed himself to die taking on the curse of man so that you and I could be restored, renewed, and refreshed in the Father, so that you and I could experience his intimacy in the Ruach HaKodesh, so that you and I could experience a restoration to the garden as we approach the kingdom of our Father for all eternity. And then we recognize 
He is just. He is fair. He is righteous. But it's entirely different than what we would perceive. Because if it were me and somebody did wrong by me on the natural human level, I'd go and take my vengeance. Somebody crosses me, I want to go slap them. I want to go beat them down. I want to go stab them. I don't know, whatever. Fix the problem. Get rid of it. Solve it. God has every right to wipe humanity off the face of the earth because he created us to experience his love and to love him as well. And we turned our back on him. Each and every one of us have gone our own way. Each of us, as Paul says, have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he's laid it all down so that we could be restored to him. Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed our report? And this is continuing that discussion that we just read in verses 13 through 15 of 12. To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nor beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, struck by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement for our shalom, for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned on his own way. So Adonai has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Does that sound fair? He was spotless. He was perfect. He was blemishless. And your iniquity and my iniquity and the iniquity of everyone that has ever breathed the breath of life was placed upon him. And he paid the price so that you and I could be restored in the freely given uh, reality of the grace and mercy of Adonai so that we could accept his salvation and be restored to him. Verse 7, he was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Does that sound fair? Doesn't sound fair to me. For the Lord himself to come robed in flesh and take on the curse and the responsibility of our sins upon himself and offer his life up to restore us the very same creation that he created and placed his very breath within for the distinct and sole purpose of having relationship with him and knowing that instantly we turned our back on him and we walked away from him. We chose to walk outside of relationship with the Lord, to walk outside of his perfection, to walk outside of what he created us for. And yet he willingly placed our curse upon his only begotten son so that you and I could be restored to him. You gotta understand there's no possible way for us to be found righteous. The scripture says two or more witnesses must bring the accusation against the one who has done wrong. You understand that there's at least two witnesses that stand, before, uh, the, that, that stand there before us accusing us, right? Or with the ability to accuse us. First and foremost is God because he sees all, knows all, right? No doubt about it, God knows each and every one of our biggest, darkest secrets that we try to hide that we think nobody else could possibly know and he's fully aware. And the other is the adversary, Hasatan, the accuser, 
whose sole purpose is to stand before the Lord and accuse you and I. And out of the two of those, one of them has no recollection of our sins once we repent and accept his salvation. Once we receive the blood atonement of Messiah and are immersed in the waters of remission, one of those has no recollection of there ever being a sin. The Lord has completely wiped it away and now there's only one witness standing there accusing us. And on the account of one witness, we can't be punished. Especially on the account of a witness who wants nothing more than destroy the people of God. And this has been given to us freely. You want to talk about fair, just, righteous. We deserve everything that should be coming our way. I know my life. I know my sins. I know the mistakes I've made and the people I've hurt. I deserve way worse than anything that is rightfully mine to be, to, to be received. Yet the blood atonement of Adonai, the blood atonement Yeshua, the mercy of Adonai has provided grounds for all of that to be washed away and me to be restored to him. Think about this, beyond the people that I've hurt, my heavenly father, whose breath is in my lungs, I have hurt more than I could ever imagine hurting a human being. Every time we sin, every time we walk away from him, we break his heart. And yet in his realm, justice and mercy and righteousness is to restore us in spite of that. In Acts chapter 3, Peter, this is post the uh, 3,000 coming to salvation in Acts 2 at the, the temple when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, was poured out on Shavuot. This is post uh, the end of Acts 2 where it says there were those daily that were being added that were coming to salvation. In Acts chapter 3, Peter's standing in the temple and he's preaching and he says, it says, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people uh, together came running toward them in the place called Solomon's Portico. But when Peter saw, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Yeshua, the one you handed over and disowned before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, the one God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of it. Now through faith in the name of Yeshua, his name has strengthened this man whom you see and know. Indeed, the faith through Yeshua has given this man perfect health in front of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders did. But what God foretold through the mouth of all his prophets, that his Messiah was to suffer, so he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, so your sins might be blotted out. So times of relief might come from the presence of Adonai, and he might send Yeshua the Messiah appointed for you. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoration of all things that God spoke about long ago through the mouth of his holy prophets. Moses said, And I, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Hear and obey him in all that he shall say to you. And it shall be that every soul that will not listen to the prophet shall be completely cut off from the people. Indeed, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel on have announced these days, you are the sons of the prophets and also of the covenant that God cut with your father Fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you all by turning each of you from your wicked ways. 
Peter's standing here before the leaders of Israel in the temple and saying, look, what are you so shocked about this miracle that just occurred? This, this person who was completely healed and able to walk. None of you bothered to live and lend a hand out to him for any reason. You didn't have the faith that he could get up and walk. This was done because of Yeshua. This was done because of faith in Messiah, the one that you sold out, the one that you denied, the one that you offered up to go on that stake, the one that you turned your backs on. But he did this so that even you can be restored, so that even you can find salvation. He did this in spite of everything that you and I and anyone that has gone on before us has ever done in their life and in spite of anything that anyone that comes after us will ever do knowing perfectly well the muck and the grime and the uselessness that we would amount to given our own propensity to follow in the ways of sin. And yet he offered the life of his only begotten son that you and I could be restored. So he says in verse 17, Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders did, but what God foretold through the mouth of all his prophets that his Messiah was to suffer, so he has fulfilled. Repent therefore in return so your sins might be blotted out. Repent and return. He did this so that you could come back to him. He did this to fulfill the words that the Lord spoke to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.14, post the building of the temple, Solomon's temple. They finished the, the building, the ornate structure and everything that went in it. They celebrated this huge feast and they celebrated Sukkot for the first time in the temple. And then there's this encounter that Solomon has with the Lord and the Lord comes and says, hey, here's all these things that are going to happen. And verse 12 says, Then Adonai appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself for a house of sacrifice. <clears throat> if I shut up heaven that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. We'll pause there for a second. Because everybody likes to quote the next verse, but nobody likes to talk about verse 13. All of those issues in verse 13, if we go to the blessings and curses that we're going to read about in the next few weeks in Deuteronomy, guess what? Those are the curses that go along with breaking the word of God, that go along with breaking the covenant and the commandments of the Lord, a.k.a. committing sins that go against the ways of Adonai. These are the curses. These are the things that the Lord said would happen. So he says, if I do all of these things that I already told you I was going to do, if you do all these things I already knew you were going to do, it says, if I shut up heaven that there is no rain, and, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. And by the way, in, in the Lord's mind, if is just there to be nice. He knows what Israel's going to do. He knows what they're going to do. Verse 14, when my people, over whom my name is called, humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. It says, if you sin and I have to do these things to get your attention and then you return back to me and you repent, you turn from your evil ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins and I will heal your land. We like to get ahead of things. We want God to do all of the stuff that he was supposed to, that he said he's going to do when we do what we're supposed to do. We want him to do his part first. And unbeknowings to us, he already has. Because all of the things that he said that would occur if we walk outside of his will, he says they're there to bring us back in repentance. 
You go to Deuteronomy and the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 27 to 30, and he says, if you sin and you walk away from me and you walk contrary to my ways, then I will do this. And if that doesn't get your attention and you continue to walk contrary to me, then I will do this. And if that doesn't get your attention and you continue to walk contrary, then I will do this. And it continues to build. But the purpose is solely to get us to turn back to him. But the Lord, in knowing humanity and knowing our propensity for sin as a fallen uh, creation, he knew perfectly well the mistakes we were going to make. And so he had a plan in place long before he ever spoke the words of the blessings and curses to restore us in spite of the fact that we wouldn't get the point when he tried to get our attention. And so here in Acts 3, Peter's crying out to the leaders of Israel, wake up. Yes, you put him on the stake. Yes, you turn him over to the Romans. Yes, you were involved in his death. And yes, he was falsely accused. But he willingly allowed that to occur to save you so that you could be restored to him. It's a powerful message. Is God fair? No, not in the least. Because we think of fair and just based off of humanity. God is fair in a whole different way. Because the reality is, is if you and I treated those that wrong us in the way God has treated us in wronging him, it would rock this world. It's a large part of why Yeshua says, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. That's why he says, forgive the uh, others, and as you've forgiven, your Father in heaven will forgive you. It's to awaken us to the reality that we don't deserve what the Lord has done for us, but he's done it anyways. And he did it for the purpose of bringing us back, because smacking us on the rear end every once in a while clearly didn't do the job. And he was aware that that wasn't going to work either. This is a powerful reality that, unfortunately, our brothers and sisters in the Jewish world have yet to see the truth of, have yet to realize that Yeshua is that suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that he is not only the suffering servant, but he is the, the prophet like Moses the Lord promised would come. And he came to call us back in repentance through his own sacrifice, offering himself as a lamb for our sins taking the curse that rightly belongs to us. Is God fair? It's entirely different than anything we could ever imagine. Entirely different than anything we could ever imagine because fair would be just wiping us all out. Fair would be just clearing land and being done with us. Fair would be never having created humanity in the first place because he knew what we were going to do. And if I were God, I wouldn't have wasted my time. And thankfully, I'm not, and he did. To God, being fair is offering a means for restoration no matter what. And his desire is for each and every person who breathes his breath of life to open their hearts to the reality of his salvation, of his grace, of his mercy, to accept the words that Peter says. Look, your actions, I know you did it in ignorance. I know you're an absolute and complete idiot. It's okay, though, because he still took on your curse so that you could be restored, so that you could turn from your idiot ways back to him. I'm paraphrasing Peter's words. It's kind of how I would imagine me saying it if it came through me. Um, but, but the reality is, is this is what the Lord's done. 
Is it fair? I can't in human terms calculate any way in which that's fair. It's way beyond fair. It's way beyond anything I could ever imagine. But in God's world, it is the absolute bare minimum definition of fair. He gave all so that you and I could be restored. And the question is, what are we going to do with that? Now that we've been given a new chance, are we going to hold on to it and hoard it? Or are we going to follow the words of the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all men so that all men can come to know God's righteous justice. I don't know about you, but I get excited thinking about the reality of what is fair in God's perspective versus what's fair in mine. Because I have no doubt in my mind that just one simple little pat and God could squash us all. He simply spoke us into existence. How easily could he simply speak us out of it? But yet he came a little lower than the angels, robed in the garments of sinful man, lived a spotless and perfect life so that he could take on the curse that was not rightly his, but was rightly ours, so that you and I could be unfairly restored to the righteousness of our Heavenly Father. It's a powerful message. I think it's a message that we take for granted, that we don't take the time to contemplate and think about in a uh, deep way that we don't take the time to truly thank God for in the way we should. Because if we did, we do a lot more to make sure that everyone we know comes to recognize the reality of God's saving grace. Of the fact that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever may call upon him will have eternal life. And I think it's time that we, the body of Messiah, recognize the value of what the Lord has done for us and pick up our stake and follow him and make sure that this world comes to know the truth of our Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you that there are those times where we do need a swift kick in the rear and yet instead we get a nice embrace from our Heavenly Father. Father, I thank you that there are times that we wallow in self-pity because of the mistakes that we've made or the people that we've hurt or the people that have hurt us. And no matter how much we wallow in it, you're standing right there ready for us to turn to you to receive our, that fatherly embrace. Father, I thank you that you have done a work of restoration that we can once again come before your throne that we can see you face to face as Moses, as we were told Moses was able to speak with you and see you face to face as a man speaks to a man. Father, I thank you that by the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua, we are capable, as Hebrew says, to boldly enter your throne room. Father, I worship you because you are a great, righteous, and holy God. Your righteousness is far greater than anything I could ever imagine, and yet you have called us to be brought into that righteousness. And so, Lord, I ask you to empower us by the leading of your Ruach HaKodesh to faithfully walk in the truth of your righteous life, to honor the breath that you have placed within us by lifting our voices and worship before you. 
and making sure that each and every person we come into contact with hears the reality of your saving grace, not just out of our mouth, but seeing it in our lives, and that we be used by you, Lord, to reach this dark and lost world for the reality and the truth of the light of Messiah. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Amen.